Genre. In the world of Hollywood, movies get greenlit and redlit. They get remade and rebooted. But we are the ideal. I'm Sam Gash, and you are listening to Ideal Remake. Thank you for listening to Ideal Remake. We take movies that either have been, will be, or should be remade and talk about what the ideal version of that remake would be. My guest today is author Ben Crane. Sometimes we take our pitches lightly, just having fun, but for the freshmen, every word I say is, by definition, a promise. So Ben, is the freshman a movie that has been, will be, or should be remade? It should be remade. Okay, great. So, welcome to Ideal Remake. So people know what's happening. Who are you? I am author Ben Crane. (laughs) Um, I'm an author and comic book writer. I wrote the crime thriller A Man of Lies and the all-ages science fiction adventure series Cosmic Cadets. Yeah. I haven't read Cosmic Cadets yet, but I have read A Man of Lies, and it is very good. Well, thank you. If people like crime thrillers, they should read A Man of Lies. It, it is now. one. If yeah. you if you like crime thrillers, this is one of them. Yeah, it's I'm that thing you like. With my hands and people appreciate that in an audio medium. Yes, honestly though, I do I do think people do because like even if you're not seeing the gestures, just like like some people can tell that like someone's like an animated talker doing different things. It carries through in the voice. Yeah, I, I think so. I hope so. Please let me know in the comments of a podcast. <laughs> so, Ben. You suggested The Freshman. How, first of all, how did you first see this movie? I genuinely don't know. It's been that long? Like you saw it like that young as a kid? I don't think so. Oh, okay. I own a DVD of this movie. Mm -hmm. I have very strong memories of having seen this movie. (laughs) Only in the past tense. I only remember having, I only remember being in the state of... This movie exists in my memory. So I do not remember where I first heard of it. (laughs) I don't remember buying the DVD. I don't remember watching it. I only remember having watched it. So what you're saying is that having seen The Freshman is itself eternal. Yes. Which, there's a a tense thing there that works, (laughs) but whatever. So my first time seeing this movie is one week ago today. We watched your DVD of this movie. (laughs) And I really liked it. I thought it was super fun. Like, the basic premise of this movie is that Matthew Broderick, Matthew Broderick plays a college freshman who gets a job for Marlon Brando doing his Godfather character and then has one job. He, he does one, one job for Marlon Brando and then is basically adopted as his son. Yeah, it's weird. It's and, a strange movie. It's a strange, strange comedy movie. I mean, you cast Matthew Broderick, I think you're expecting a comedy. Did Matthew Broderick ever do anything that wasn't com? Well, uh, the War Games. And War Games. I guess that's true. I just think he was kind of a goofy guy. Uh, yeah, other than, I mean, he got, War Games was his first credit, I Is think. It? I think so. I don't know why I associate him with Brighton Beach Memoirs, even though it's distinctly possible it's not him. Well, yeah, after War Games, I think he was just comedies. It was not him in Brighton Beach Memoirs decidedly not him (laughs) i am picturing the wrong thing oh no wait hold on oh yeah no that's a different person that's a that's a strongly different person i've made a terrible terrible mistake 
we all have. Mm-hmm. I I was genuinely worried when I told you about this movie. I realized I pitched it to you as Matthew Broderick gets a job working for Marlon Brando playing the Godfather. Yeah. I I had a moment where I was like, is it actually Marlon Brando? Because that is <laughs> such a absolutely wild concept for a movie. That yeah. can't possibly be right. And yet, it is. And as far as I can tell, this movie was base level well possibly not successful so the budget of this movie this movie was 12 million dollars in 1990 that's more than i would have guessed it is also more than i would have guessed but i would assume a chunk of that is going to marlon brando (laughs) yes i would assume at least one of those millions is going to marlon brando opening weekend it made two hundred thousand dollars but uh, this is not a movie which you do a wide release for. The, no. You, uh, they, they must have done a, a slow yeah. word of mouth campaign. It, over, its box office in general was $21.5 million. So I'm guessing it didn't have a huge marketing campaign. So I'm going to guess this movie was moderately... It at least broke even. Yeah. And sometimes that's all you can ask for. Yeah. This movie gets to exist. And clearly it sold at least one DVD. Exactly. And you know what? Anyone who wrote or directed this movie or acted in it is really appreciative of the residuals you got them. I'm doing my part. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so, but like, we're talking about The Freshman. Yes. Um, I imagine there's a lot of people out there who haven't seen this movie. So I feel like we do have to do a little bit of like a quick rundown of what happens. Yeah. Like, so the movie, the movie starts in the woods. Matthew Broderick is just kind of like casually hands in pockets following what turns out to be his stepdad in full hunting gear as his stepdad takes a shot and fires his gun at a hunter. At a, at a human being. At a human just being. Just a straight shot at another human man. Yeah, I mean, he's not trying to kill the human man. He's trying to scare the human man off to start, stop him from hunting because he's a, a, a militant animal rights kind of guy. So as a vegetarian, I assume he was your hero. Absolutely, yeah. Great. I I really empathize with him most of all of all of the people in this film. Great, <laughs> uh, and thank you for reducing me down to a single quality as well. I really appreciate we all have that. that one quality that defines us, but sometimes it just takes someone else to identify what that is. Yeah, mm-hmm. for me, it's clearly my vegetarianism. <laughs> Nothing you've done or accomplished. <laughs> You're welcome. Is basically what I'm trying to say. I'm so sorry. <laughs> So basically it's like, well, here's Matthew Broderick and his relationship with his stepdad. And then he, am I missing anything before then and when he goes off to college? No, he pretty, he he gets back from the hunting murder trip Mm -hmm. and immediately leaves for college. (laughs) Yes. He has, there's one awkward family dinner. Yeah, that's right. Where they don't talk. Yeah, to establish that the angry hunter man is his stepfather. Right. Correct. And then like, as they're going to college, I think the stepfather says, I put 600 bucks in your bag. Don't spend it all in one place or something like so, that. Something to that effect, yeah. So then Matthew Broderick gets on the train, gets to New York, is in Grand Central Station, and runs into Victor Ray is the guy's name, right? Uh, you're the one with notes, so I'll... Great. Victor Ray, the, who is kind of just like a... I'm just a guy over here, right? I mean, look, you're in New York. I'm here to help you. Why won't you let me help you? Do you, do you need ten? Do you have $10 so that I can take your picture? No? Tell you what. I'll give you a ride to school. Like one of those kind of guys. And this guy 
gives Matthew Broderick a ride to school, but then before Matthew can get all the stuff out of the trunk, which, first of all, don't do that, takes off with all of Matthew Broderick's things. Matthew Broderick's name is Clark Kellogg. I should say that. <laughs> but let's let's be serious. He's Matthew Broderick. He's Matthew Broderick. He is not playing a character. That's true. He is Matthew Broderick. That is also true. Yes. So, <laughs> Matthew Broderick. And then Matthew Broderick's trying to, like, explain things to presumably the only professor who works at NYU. Yeah, he is a freshman at NYU. Yes. Which means that he takes exclusively film courses. Uh-huh, which we all do as freshmen at, at school is we take classes within our desired major. Yes. And... But the fact that Matthew Broderick is interested in film never comes up at any point in the movie, and yet. Yep. I... Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So his teacher is named Arthur Fleeber, which is an incredible name. Arthur Fleeber's the best because he's the worst. Yeah, he's he is just the smarmiest, most self-righteous, self-holy, self-aggrandizing professor. The, 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 we first meet him because Matthew Broderick doesn't have the money to buy the $500 worth of textbooks. $700 which are worth of all books. written by Fleeber. Yes. And Fleeber keeps saying, the uh, if, if he says things like, and of course, the history, the uh, Fleiber's history of cinema, yes. and, and of course, uh, uh, creating a character by by Fleiber, and just like it's ah, oh, we've all had teachers or professors like this, not even necessarily to that extent, but just like who are just so arrogant, like you hate him, but he's doing such a good job that you're just like this actor's great. Yeah, yeah, that was my intro to women's studies professor oh, in, in college. Interesting. Yeah, sixty-five year old white man. Who, I'm assuming, wrote the book on women? Uh, he he did, in fact, write a book on women that we all had to buy and then study for the Intro to Women's Studies class. It was the only required book. Oh, my God. I mean, that's <laughs> that's amazing, but also, oh, my God. <laughs> it, was, it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> it, it can't have been good. I don't think there's any way. No. 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 So, through the window, Matthew Broderick sees Victor Ray, and he's like, hey, look, that's the guy that robs me. And then he just, like, kind of lets himself out the window, Arthur Fleeber's window, and then chases this guy down on foot. And then the guy's just like, eh, I guess you caught me. You want to come upstairs and help me with laundry? And Matthew Broderick's like, sure. It, almost exactly like that. This just a stunning recreation, really. <laughs> it's like we're watching the movie again. Ah, it really takes <laughs> us back. And so Victor Ray basically says, I've got a terrible gambling problem. I don't have your money anymore, but I can get you a job. Now, you can't tell anyone I got you this job, but I'll get you this job. And then it turns out the job is real. The job, Clark Kellogg, Matthew Broderick, finds out uh, when he goes to an exclusive gentleman's club with a picture of Mussolini on the wall, is running errands for Marlon Brando, who looks and acts exactly like the Godfather. And no one comments on the fact that he looks and acts exactly like the Godfather, except for the fact that he looks and acts exactly like the Godfather. And everyone tries to as soon as they meet him. Yes. So Broderick walks through the door and says, oh my god, he looks just like... And then Victor Ray like claps a hand on his shoulder and yeah. says, like, no, you can't say anything. Yeah, and I guess the, the roommate later is like, oh yeah, you do look exactly like... Would you mind leaving? Yeah. Again, flawless impression. I'm not even going to try. That's probably wiser. And so basically the job is just running errands, picking something up, dropping it off. That's it. He gets paid $500 and he gets a couple of those jobs a week. He makes a thousand bucks a week. Oh my God. 
Yeah, that yeah. Cool. And it's New York in 1990, so that's that's significant money. It is. Hell, that's significant money now. Thousand bucks a week? I'd take that. Yeah. It sounds good to me. Uh, the problem is it's below the table, so where it would really get you is on the, the self-employment taxes. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem. Anyway, so Matthew Broderick goes to do this job. He goes to pick up the car at Marlon Brando, whose name is Carmine Sabatini. He goes to pick up the, the car at, the, at uh, his house, and Carmine Sabatini's daughter... Is basically throwing herself at him. He's like, oh my goodness, you must be so much fun. This is so lovely. Ah. I've heard such wonderful things about you. Yeah. That everyone in the family is talking about how great you are. Yeah. Mar- uh, Marlon Brando. Matthew Broderick is like, I don't understand. Matthew Broderick, Marlon Brando. So MB Young and MB Old. That's a much better way of keeping <laughs> yeah, it yeah. straight. That's... Uh... Uh, is like he doesn't... He's like, he's into it because obviously she's gorgeous. But also he's like, I don't understand what's going on or what's happening. And he ends up picking up the car. Uh, he's told to bring a friend. So he brings a friend to go to the airport to go pick up what turns out to be... A Komodo dragon. As one does. For those curious, Ben and I figured out that it was in fact a monitor lizard. And the movie was just telling us it was a Komodo dragon. Despite the fact that it doesn't really look anything like a Komodo dragon. It's just a large lizard. It, whatever. Whatever. It doesn't it's matter. Movie, movie magic. Yeah. It's, a, it's like telling us that this... 50-year-old is 30, or this 30-year-old is 50. Yeah, that 28-year-old Matthew Broderick is a college freshman. That's right. The, you know what? Good example. Better example. Um, and so they, Matthew Broderick and his roommate, whose name is Dwight Armstrong, go off on an adventure. They lose the lizard at one point. They regain the lizard. It escapes in a mall. They get it back. They get it to the guy. And this guy, uh, Steve Bouchak, and his assistant, Eduardo, or Edward or something, are just really weird, interesting characters. They meet them. Uh, Steve Bouchak is like, I what? Uh, I was told one guy would be coming, and now there's two. And then one I, boy. One boy. I I was told one boy. There are two boys, and yes. he just keeps saying that over and over. That's true. He's so weird. It it just he says boy with <laughs> with an accent. I do not know what accent he's doing. It is I, definitely an accent. I don't know if it's even supposed to be a definitive accent or if it's just generic European. No, I don't, so I didn't think it was that kind of accent because I know someone who speaks that. I would describe it as not an accent, but an affect. Okay. Uh, it's it's just someone who um, like adopts airs. Yeah. Like that yeah. kind of uh, performance. Literally, I know someone who speaks exactly like that and dresses exactly like that. So it's someone who just likes being seen as the fashionable one mm-hmm. and kind of presents in that way. Yeah. And that's kind of the impression that I got from uh, this particular actor and character or whatever. Um, but they drop off the Komodo dragon and it's to a barn full of cool and exotic animals. And it's like, oh my God, there's a tiger there. There's birds. There's other examples. Who can say? I think there's probably a monkey of some kind. Probably. So they drop the animal off, they go back, Matthew Broderick gets his money, the roommate doesn't, everyone wins. That's the one job he does. <laughs> he, he does... I was trying to figure out the timeline for this movie. I think yeah. it, it's like four days. The, presu- the presumption is that other jobs have happened. But they clearly haven't. I, but that's exactly it. They clearly haven't. And I don't know what to expect. But basically, yeah, so... All these different things. And so basically at this point, this one job has happened and then Matthew Broderick gets... So Matthew Broderick, we do get to see him in film class, in Fleber's film class, 
where they're watching scenes from The Godfather. Yeah, The Godfather exists within the diegesis of this movie. Which it must, because they say Marlon Brando looks just like the guy from The Godfather. And they they say that The Godfather was modeled on Carmine Sabatini. Sabatini. Yeah. Well... But And then we see clips from The Godfather, but it's only ever Al Pacino. It's never yes. Marlon Brando. Yes. Which is wild. And just as like a fun little t- uh, note, every time they're showing clips from the movie, because it's clearly in multiple classes, they're just still watching the same movie. Fleber is mouthing along, and it's great because he's a monster. <laughs> Fleber is amazing. <laughs> it's, he's so good. Basically, a couple of cops get Matthew Broderick, find him, like chase him down. And, because they chased him when he went to go get, when he picked up the car. I don't know, whatever. They chase him down, they find him, and basically they say, hey, look, we're the government, we know who you are. Sabatini and the Steve Bouchak are getting endangered animals because they have something called the Gourmet Club, where they eat endangered animals. And then Matthew Broderick's like, oh my god. And then they're like, you're going to go to jail because you ate it and abetted, unless you turn him in. And then Matthew Broderick has like 10, 15 minutes of like, oh, do I do it? Oh my gosh, I feel like I shouldn't do it. Marlon Brando comes to him in his dorm room and is like, on the day of my daughter's wedding. I mean, uh, uh, something like that. He goes and talks to the daughter and the daughter's like, well, we're going to get married. So you're going to be a part of the family. And he's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, clearly we're engaged. Everyone in the family loves you. You you transported that Komodo dragon from New York City to... New Jersey yeah. so well. Oh, man. You picked something up in an area of the airport where I guess you go pick things up now, which I guess is a thing that existed in 1990. And uh, so engaged to Sabatini's daughter, has to decide if he's going to turn Sabatini in, is like dealing with this in his uh, stereotypical Matthew Broderick way of like not and just letting events unfold around him until eventually he's driving the daughter and Sabatini to the gourmet club. And he's like, I might have to turn you in. And Sabatini's like, well, if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. Sabatini wearing the exact costume from the opening of Godfather one. Yes. From the day of his daughter's wedding. From the day of his daughter's wedding. It's great. Uh, So they go to the gourmet club. Everything's happening. Basically, the brother comes out, or Victor Ray, because like Sabatini's his uncle or something, comes out and goes, if you had to tell the authorities about something that was happening, you should do it now. And Matthew Broderick's like, oh, okay. And he goes and like signals the cops. And so basically the cop, the two cops who turns out to be are corrupt and working for one of the other crime families come in, basically take the money that was paid for this gourmet club and run, half the money for the gourmet club and run. And uh, basically a whole big thing happens where Sabatini pulls out a gun, Matthew Broderick fights for it, and Sabatini and we like think Sabatini's been shot, but then it turns out it was all just a huge setup. Oh, and the the two dirty cops were tipped off by Matthew Broderick's stepdad. Right, because they they're not just cops; they're from like the Department of Fish and Wildlife. That's I think. it. Yes, that's correct. Uh, and as we all know, every major crime family has a plant in the Department of Fish and Wildlife, You'd have and to. these two were from the rival crime family. And so when stepdad, local game warden yeah. in the Midwest somewhere, calls in Vermont. his tip in Vermont, right? It's yes. a whole big thing. How could I, <laughs> how could you could possibly I forget? forget? He calls in the tip. Because Matthew Broderick had called home yeah, just to, to say, kind of like, like, talk about the job. He's like, I met a Komodo dragon I, today. I just transported a Komodo dragon across state lines. Is that cool? <laughs> <laughs> I, and now don't tell stepdad. I'm really yeah. just here to talk to you, mom. Yeah. And then we get to the end and we find out that literally everything that happened was a big setup 
by Sabatini. Like, they intentionally targeted Matthew Broderick because they knew who his stepdad was, and they knew the stepdad would find out, and they knew that the stepdad would turn everybody in because it would give them an opportunity to get the fish and wildlife off their backs, but it turns out they weren't even serving animals. They were rescuing the animals, donating them to zoos, and then actually serving the people who came to eat the endangered animals roast turkey or something. Something like like deli turkey or something like that. And it was all just a crazy convoluted plan that worked perfectly. And at the end, Matthew Broderick's dancing with the daughter and is like, your dad's kind of a genius. She's like, yeah, he is. He's like, so what are you like? And she's like, I mean, I was just kind of playing along and doing the thing I was supposed to be doing, but it'd be nice to actually go out with you on a date one time. You seem kind of cool. Because she's like, not a caricature. Yes. And honestly, I liked it. Just like this whole big resolution of this crazy convoluted plot. Just being like, yeah, no, we know it was crazy convoluted. On purpose. It makes absolutely no sense. No. But it lands emotionally. Yes. So for our purposes, for our remake, it should make sense. I would agree with that. Yes. So I gave you a heads up that I feel like this movie kind of lives and dies with who we cast as Sabatini. Yes. So normally we do casting at the end, but I do think we should start with Sabatini now. Okay. And then get to the rest of the casting later. Yeah. So I feel like... Because one of the... excuse me, running jokes of the movie is that, like, you look just like blank. Yes. And I feel like we have to have someone who looks just like some other well-known crime guy or crime yes. lady. Yeah. I have someone in mind. Do, who did you have for your Sabatini? So this is, I, to answer this, I do have to get a little bit into sort of Please. my vision of what I think the remake should be. I, I agree. Uh, I'd love to hear all about it. So in the original The Freshman... There is a brief mention it when when Matthew Broderick first gets to New York of class class tension. Okay. And the movie was released in 90s, so probably made in 89. It's the end of the 80s. New York was going through a lot of class turmoil at that time. Yeah. And this whole premise of incredibly rich people paying a million dollars to eat the last Komodo dragon on the planet lends itself very well to a story about class tension. If I remember correctly, you and I both had a audible groan when they actively made fun of Donald Trump. Yes. I think they said, well, you don't want to be some sort of rich guy in your personalized tower uh, in New York surrounded by gold, right? Or was something like that. Yeah. I think they did. They directly name checked him. They but probably yeah. did. It, it had the same feel as when Trump shows up in uh, Home Alone 2. Yeah. He's one of those guys. But I'm sorry, continue. And also, so I, I think that we should lean heavily into that idea of class tension. That, okay. That it should be a movie about screwing over the rich. Great. Love that. In keeping with that, 1990, there were a lot of mafia movies being made. Um, obviously, Godfather was older in, in the 70s, but you had Goodfellas in the 80s. Uh, Casino was still yet to come in 95. It was sort of the height of Scorsese's mafia golden era. Okay. All of those mob movie jokes were going to land a lot better then than now, where we don't have as much of a, especially Italian mafia Yes, that's uh, true. Zeitgeist going on in the culture. Yeah, I agree with that. The zeitgeist that we seem to be in the middle of now is the just innate criminality of wealth. 
and super rich people just being awful and criminal by virtue of their wealth. That you cannot attain that level of power without being corrupt. Correct. And I think nobody exemplifies that better than Brian Cox in Succession. Interesting. Okay. So I I would cast Brian Cox as uh, I forget the name of his uh, succession that, character, sure. but like whatever the knockoff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and kind of lose the Italian mafia angle of it. Yes. And lean more into just the the criminality of the rich. Yes, I think that's fair. I think that's reasonable. I think that's a good pitch. I also think the uh, boy the rich sure are dumb is always a good fodder <laughs> for a movie. I didn't even think about that. I was kind of just thinking of who kind of our modern iconic crime guys are. Yeah. The kind of people who are crime guys who would where their crime things would be shown in a NYU film studies class. Yeah. And for me, a lot of those crime things aren't in movies as much anymore. It's now TV because we spend so much time with more time with these people. And for me, that's kind of why I wanted to go with the other Brian, Brian Cranston. Also a very strong choice. I mean, the important thing is we have to go with a Brian. Yes. What I thought would be fun is because part of what makes this movie is just like the animals and the this and the that is I still think that with Brian Cranston, we can lean into the endangered animal bit, but I specifically want us not to be eating them, but to be going after rare animals because it is like this... If you get a Komodo dragon, you're not getting it to eat the Komodo dragon. It's to harvest the Komodo dragon venom and get high off of it. Okay. And it is the rare and exotic drugs that you do at a sort of party like this just because it's like, oh my gosh, it's such a unique and interesting and like, well, what did you do last weekend? Oh, I got high off Komodo dragon venom. I see. And I don't even necessarily have a Komodo dragon in this, but like... I have interesting, venomous, and weird animals. Uh, And because you get to lean into the Brian Cranston of it all of, it's drugs. Yeah. And you get to have, and known comedy man, Brian Cranston, doing his known comedy things, but also like, because we've seen, because he's done his Breaking Bad character and like weird commercials Mm -hmm. and a bunch of other stuff. Mm -hmm. And you could, and it doesn't need to be Italian, like, He's, but he is the crime guy, and you could very easily have him be kind of what he is in Breaking Bad of the poor crime guy who becomes the rich crime guy. Yeah. I even like went down a whole rabbit hole of like trying to find like a cute venomous animal. And because you think of it as like being lizards and snakes and that yeah. sort of thing, despite yeah. the fact that there's only two venomous lizards the Komodo dragon and the Gila monster, notwithstanding. What I found out is that there is a venomous mammal. Well, I guess it's... the So the pygmy slow loris is the only known venomous primate. Basically what they do is they have... I guess uh, I, I put it in my mouth. But basically they have modified sweat glands near their elbow and they basically secrete a toxin. They put that on their fingers and then they basically wipe their mouth with the venom and then they bite down with that. But you look at pictures of these guys, and the, like you've seen I, pictures. Slow lorises are adorable. They're adorable. They have yeah. giant eyes. Yeah. They've got this weirdly creepy long middle finger, which is what they use to like get the venom. Okay. And so you get to play around with the idea of just like this adorable animal, and then but then like it's been very 
detailed and described how their venom will affect and kill someone. I like that. But I do think we need to do the rich man, poor man kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important because I do think Brian Cox is good. Brian Cranston, I think, is more recognizable. And that's, that's the, 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 joke, it, it, the is... joke is that, that they are, especially Brian Cranston as Walter White. Yeah, that is like such he has to iconic... show up with the goatee. Yeah. Like, genuinely, if Brian Cranston is in this movie and we're calling out the fact that he's the, the crime guy, yeah. at some point a pizza has to end up on a roof. Yeah. And, like, you can even comment on the fact, like, he can even try to get a pizza on a roof. He's like, wow, it's really hard to make that happen a second time or something like that because there's the whole mythology about how, like, it was just such a crazy thing to happen. And the people who own that house in, where do they film? Austin uh, or something? I mean, it's set in Albuquerque, Albuquerque. But I don't know if they filmed so they, in they Albuquerque. Filmed it, they but... filmed in Albuquerque. Okay. Uh, the, the house where they filmed that, people literally make pilgrimage to that house and throw pizzas. They keep going there pizzas. and throwing pizzas on their... And of course they hilarious, do. hilarious. But then the people who live there have, have to, to get pizzas off their roof. Jesus. Which, of all the things, <laughs> there could be worse. But it's also very funny. There could be worse, but you've got to keep on top of that. Because if you leave a pizza on your roof for a week... Yeah. It's gonna, the oil is gonna seep into stuff, and it's a problem. Animals are gonna get up there. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that'd be a problem. And they're not even knocking; they just drive up and drive up, throw, throw a pizza, pizza <laughs> probably take a picture, yeah. and then leave. Yeah, yes, but yeah, okay. Like in terms of iconography, Brian Cranston is probably the one to go with. But I do, I also think we we can and should play around with rich versus poor. Yeah. And just, like, rich, the, the idle wealthy having so much money that they have nothing else to do but waste it on these ridiculously decadent parties. And they're just dumb. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that's our Carmine Sabatini. But let's talk about what we want to do for the movie. Do we still want to set it in New York? And presumably we should set it, like, now, presently. Uh, yeah, it, present day. Yeah. When when I was thinking Succession, then that has to be in New York. Okay. But if we're going with Brian Cranston, if we're going for this more drug... When I think of Idle Rich doing weird drugs... Yeah. That says San Francisco to me okay. more than New York. Sure. That's great. Let's go with San Francisco then. Like tech bros being into body hacking and... Yeah, that's true. Hey, I, the one thing I hate about my day is that I have to take breaks to eat meals. I wish there was something I could just drink and I wouldn't have to do meals. I've invented Soylent. Which is a real thing and is his actual opinion. The man is a lunatic. He invented Soylent so he couldn't, because he hated eating food. He just wanted to keep working. Yep. What a regular, normal man. <laughs> so good. Okay, great. I love San Francisco. Because I had a pitch where... Because, like, the whole thing where Victor Ray kind of takes advantage of uh, Matthew Broderick at the beginning of the movie is, like, he drives him in a cab. Yeah. But, like, we're in San Francisco. You put him in, him in an Uber or a Lyft. He goes... Some random guy picks him up, talks the whole way there. They get to the locations. And, like, before Matthew Broderick, the, or the Clark Kellogg character, even gets out, you have a whole conversation about, man, look... I'm going to ask you now, would you mind leaving me five stars? It really helps. It's like a whole thing. I'm so close to be like not even having this gig anymore. It'd be really helpful. And so like literally he gets Matthew Broderick, the, the he gets Clark Kellogg 
to leave a five-star review and which closes the encounter out. And then as soon as he gets out of the car, the car can still take off. Yeah. Like, you can still do that. Yeah, that that works. And do we want him to... Because he's not... What, what do we want him to actually be studying? Like, he's just going to college. Does it matter what he's studying? I think we could just say college. I Yeah, I... I... Yes, he's going to college. I think the only reason they said Matthew Broderick was in film school is was so they could show clips of The Godfather. Absolutely. But, like, you genuinely could just put him in a women's studies course and the professor could be doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Or a sociology class yeah. where he can be showing clips from Breaking Bad talking about, like, how this exemplifies rich versus poor. Yep. That's what we should actually do. Sociology, a class a freshman would have to take. <laughs> But Clark Kellogg should be studying sociology. Yeah, sociology is the thing that makes sense. Okay. I also feel like... But then, like, we can kind of keep the things of, like, he happens to run into the, the Uber driver, or, like, somehow he's able to call a lift again, and somehow it ends up being the same guy. And you could even have a chase scene where the Uber driver takes off, and then he jumps on a scooter, but because it's, like, bumper-to-bumper traffic in San Francisco, he manages to keep up mm, until finally... Okay. Like, the guy, like, gets to gets home, gets to his parking spot. I was like, all right, fine, you got me. Come on up. And and we can still have him get a job. And they go to a gentleman's club where, in the back, sits a man in a fedora with a goatee, <laughs> Brian Cranston. And gets same sort of job, same sort of offer. Let's say a 1000 bucks a pickup. That yeah. way it's $2,000 a week instead yeah. of uh, yeah. one. But, like, at that point, I feel like we then need to give him a couple other jobs. He does need to do more than a single delivery. Should they all be animals, or should, could they be, like, one's, e- like, easy, medium animal? I, I like that more. Okay. I think the jumping straight into the Komodo dragon l- works for the, you know, keeping him off balance. Yeah. It also works for the keeping the runtime of the movie quite low. That's also true. Uh, what was the runtime of this movie? 102 minutes, so hour 40. Yeah. Not bad. We've got time for we got uh, time for two more five minute uh little assignments. I have I have an idea for the first one. Okay. So I mean, especially if we're ramping up and starting with easy, if we want to throw our Clark Kellogg off, the first thing he can do, the first thing he can be assigned to do is uh he's assigned to go to McDonald's, pick up an order of fries, bring them back, and give them to Brian Cranston. Good job, you did the thing. I'm Brian Cranston. <laughs> But just, like, something so super easy. Like, he goes, picks up french fries, brings them back. Here's $1,000. And he just he just took an Uber to get there. Yeah. So we know that Uber Eats exists. Yes. That that if, if Brian Cranston really wanted some McDonald's fries and really wanted to pay a private courier to do it, he could do that from his phone oh, for $3. So easily. Or, have, or if, and if he didn't want his, like, didn't want, like, a paper trail... He could ask, like, the bartender to do it. Yeah. Yeah, something really dumb and easy like that, where it makes no sense, and he has $1,000, and all of a sudden he's like, okay, cool. So, the, like, I feel like that's an easy one. For the medium one, I'm not sure. So, the easy one is off-putting because it is so easy. Yes. And then the animal is off-putting because it's a, a venomous animal. Yes. The middle one... I, I think that one of the largest glosses in the original film is when Matthew Broderick goes to Marlon Brando and says, we're not doing anything criminal, right? Yeah. And Marlon Brando says, no, 
and then takes two walnuts from a bowl <laughs> on his desk and crushes them in his hand. Two definitely real walnuts that weren't preset to immediately fall apart with the slightest bit of pressure. And and that's it. That's the only time that Broderick raises this issue of uh, yeah, criminality. I'm, I don't want to be involved in crime. Yeah. And I think that we we could tug on that string a little bit more. Okay. And have the second job be something that is more significantly potentially criminal, but also just skirts the line of um, plausibly legit. Okay, I have one. And it also will do something the movie did a little haphazardly. Okay. The second, like, he goes and picks up fries. Yep. The second one can be the daughter's chauffeur while she goes and goes shopping. Okay. So he can take the daughter around to different stores as she goes and buys things. And at the, at, he doesn't notice at the first one, doesn't really notice the second, but at the third, you can see her picking up envelopes and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like picking up the clothes, but also getting an envelope full of something to go with. And he realizes that the daughter's not paying for any of these things. I also think it would be funny if we have him driving the car, chaperoning the daughter, and then the car is being escorted by a black van. It's like, well, there's a black van. Why couldn't you take them? That's no fun. Why would I want to take a black van? I I love this car. And daddy doesn't trust any of the any of the enforcers to drive it. He, he just, only he only trusts you. He only trusts you. His most faithful and loyal and effective worker. Yes. You got him that that bag of fries so well and everyone is talking about. You made sure it. that In-N-Out made them extra crispy. So, like you you ordered off the secret menu or like if we don't do McDonald's, we do In-N-Out. Yeah. You made sure you got the secret menu, extra crispy, and they were salty just like Dad liked. They were just in, like Daddy liked them. Is there In-N-Out in San Francisco? Or is yeah, that SoCal? I don't know. Let's find out. Very, very important detail for this movie. Yes. Okay. The answer to the question is yes. If you're in San Francisco, if you go to 333 Jefferson Street in San Francisco, you can find an In-N-Out there. We'd also like to thank this episode's sponsor. Fresh Brothers. <laughs> Wait, no, that's pizza. Uh, five Guys. Is Five Guys? Five Guys, burger and fries. Okay. I'm a vegetarian. I don't know if you oh, know this about me. I I knew there was one thing about you, and only one thing. Yeah. And for some reason, I'd forgotten what it was. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay. So, fries, daughter chaperoning, and then yeah. you've done such a good job taking care of my sweet baby princess and picking up fries. Yep. I'm going to give you an easy job this time. I just need you to run down to whatever this airport in San Francisco is, pick up a package, deliver it to wine country. Because what is other? What else is emblematic of... Or wine country or Silicon Valley? I think wine country. Okay. Because that wine country is where the big party would be. Yeah. Like, you're not going to go party... Well, yes, you're correct. Okay. So pick up this package, deliver it to wine country... And so that can be the slow loris. Yeah. And the the venom and the poison of the slow loris can be very detailed. Like, the explanation can be extremely detailed. Clark Kellogg takes the roommate with, and they're like, it's so cute. It's such a cute little guy. Look, I'm picking up chicks with, the, with this adorable animal. And then you just watch it, just like, just... 
I don't know how, like, they're slow lorises. They're very cute. I don't know how they actually do the thing, but I think it's by biting. And, like, it, we can go the opposite of what we had in the original of the, the Komodo dragon gets out in a mall, scares everybody. This time, it's they have to, like, something happens, they have to make a trip on foot, and there's too many people. Right. And they draw too much attention. Right. People are trying to take pictures with the slow loris, and it's like, no, 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 no one take pictures with this. It's a problem. Oh, my God, no. And meanwhile, the roommate's like, tag me at this, tag me at that. And you get to go both both ways of... The first one was unwanted animal. This time it's too wanted. Yeah. Something like that. I think that works. Okay. Animal gets dropped off the same way. Big thing of animals. A lot more lizards and snakes than yeah. whatever's, but yeah. great. I think at that point, the movie could kind of take place with a lot of the other same tent poles that we have. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the the larger structure makes sense mm-hmm. we just Other... have to like have a little bit more support yeah yeah and we need we need the ending to be a little bit better established going in yes it's a little bit too much you know, carmine sabatini is too much of a genius in, yes in the original yeah he he is he's playing 18 dimensional chess while nobody else is playing chess at all he, he is too many steps ahead yeah that's true I like the... Before we get to that, let's build up to that. I like the idea of when Carmine Sabatini goes to Clark Kellogg's dorm room and they kind of have the heart-to-heart. Yeah. I think we also get, can do that in a moment of he can show up with French fries. Okay, yeah. We yeah. started with you bringing me French fries. Now I'm bringing you French fries. It's full circle. If you want to take this opportunity to be out, I'll respect it. But I just want you to know how much you've meant to my daughter. It's just like one of those where you're just like, you're, if you want to be out, that's fine. But I got to tell you... There's also something which is kind of present in in the original, but desperately needs to be further amplified, is the emotional reasons for why Matthew Broderick is doing what he's doing. Which in in the original, he's just kind of stumbling along. Yeah, and he kind of is like, well, I need the money. You have the money. But the, the core of the character is that he wants a father. Oh, it's yeah. not that he's looking for money. It's that his father died when he was very young. That's true. And uh, his stepfather is awful. And what Sabatini offers him far more than the money that he needs to attend this awful class is he offers him family and, and yeah. love and a father. And I, Brian Cranston can play the hell out of a supportive father. That's very true. And, and I think that that, that is when... Th- this is the point in the movie where we start drilling into that. I think that's it, true. Especially because he can be there in the dorm room and he can see something that Clark Kellogg happens to be working on and genuinely take an interest in what the character yeah. is doing. Yeah. Which is something that the stepfather never does, but his original father did. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And that's that's the point where Kellogg stops being this rube who's being led along by confusion and becomes a willing participant in what's happening because he is getting the emotional support from Brian Cranston that he never got from his stepfather. I agree. I think you're right. I think that that matters. And because of that, he needs to then because Brian Cranston lets him in and he lets Brian Cranston in, 
they have to be co-conspirators in the finale. Yes. We, the audience, can be clued out, like, not clued in, but they, they both have to know. Yeah. Because I think it only works if they're both clued in. Yeah. And they can have this emotional touching moment, and even the scene can end with being like, with uh, Clark Kellogg being, there is something I need to tell you, and then we cut away from that. Yeah. And then the next thing we know, we're driving to wine country with Sabatini, the daughter, and Clark Kellogg, and uh, uh, Victor Ray, the the nephew, mm-hmm. the the Uber driver nephew, who could absolutely have done any of these things. It's just great. And so we're in wine country, and. <laughs> You know what would be funny is instead of Steve Bouchak being a chef, he can be a sommelier of drugs. Okay. Like talk like like different pictures on the wall of like the different kinds of venoms and poisons yeah. available. Yeah. And just like here's what to here's what this high is going to be like. Here's what this high is going to be like. Here's what this high is going to be like. And then it's going to be presented in this way or that way or this way or that way. And the, and just, like, we're getting this whole big experience and, and, like, all of the the dumb rich people are like, ooh, ah, ooh, that does sound like a fun high. Like, that sort of thing. Especially if we're in wine country, we can really lean into it. Mm-hmm. And so that that's happening. And then what we, we, we need to have a showdown with Clark Kellogg, Sabatini, and the, the bad cops. Yeah. You love bad cops. I do love bad cops. How would you take down these bad cops? So... I don't know if you know this, but there's bad cops in uh, you audience members. Ben Crane's book, A Man of Lies, has a couple bad cops in it. And they're great. I mean, they're terrible. We hate them. But they're portrayed very, very well. So if there's someone whose expertise on bad cops is going to be trusted, it's the person who created two very good bad cops that I say directly to my computer instead of directly to the microphone. Not that any of you can see this. And while fastidiously avoiding eye contact so that we don't have the incredibly <laughs> awkward moment of you praising me while our eyes meet. <laughs> that would true. be That would be too much. You're correct. Far too personal. Can't have it. So you are the expert in this room on bad cops. How should we take down these two? So there is a recurring theme in noir that the truth is meaningless. Okay. That... Getting the truth out there doesn't do anything to help the situation and, and, you know, often makes it worse. Also, I want to preface all of this by saying I have not thought about an answer to this ahead of time. So all of, all of this is very improvisational. You're doing great. Okay. That's what this whole podcast is. It's fine. (laughs) Great. Great. At, as a cis white man, I am very confident just speaking extemporaneously <laughs> about things which I and marginally that is understand. Our right. <laughs> Continue. Uh, Again, people listen to a podcast hosted by a cis white man. They're used to it. So one of my problems with like most the, podcasts, yeah. <laughs> one of my problems with the original is. The way the the dirty cops are brought down is they're tricked into taking this money. They cackle and like tent their fingers gleefully <laughs> as they're like, "Ooh, so much money! Ooh, look at us! Let's let's escape with our ill-gotten gains!" Yes, and then twirling their mustaches, they run off into the cornfields of New Jersey, and and are. Oh yeah, good point. And then and are immediately arrested. immediately arrested by the FBI, who then turns around and leaves. Yep. 
and does no further investigation. Well, we've done everything we need to do here. This bureau has been federally investigated. So, however the dirty cops are brought down, it has to be in a way which it is further explained than just the FBI shows up, arrests them, and, and gets rid of them. And I still think they can be uh, fish and wildlife. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, the funny thing is that, like, they can be fish and wildlife, and then they step outside, and they, I mean, I'd say they run into a moose, but there are no mooses in Northern California. But, like, where they get taken down by fish and wildlife, as opposed to something like that. But the tone of the movie that we've crafted so far doesn't really lend itself to that. Yeah. It's not a John Candy movie. So, let me pitch something. Great. Which is, Sabatini's plan is not to have the dirty cops get arrested with the money as they flee. Sabatini's plan is to put all of this on Kellogg. Oh. And the original plan, when when he first creates this ridiculous Rube Goldberg machine of a of a con is to draw Kellogg into all of this get him inextricably tied into all of it that's why he keeps giving him all of this money is to make their finances linked from a an investigative sure um, the, the, you can go to the bank and see that this random kid is de- is depositing a lot of cash yeah, yeah. a lot of cash deposits where is that money coming from it can only be coming from illicit deals and to still do the they split the money in half at the end sacrifice half of it to get the cops off of them and then they they escape with the other half but the plan is for them to escape with the other half and then the cops come in, and the only one left on site is Kellogg. Oh. That's the plan from the start. Okay. And the death that is faked is not Sabatini's, but Kellogg's. Oh. That when they have their heart-to-heart where Kellogg says, I need to tell you this thing, and it's that the Department of Fish and Wildlife has turned me into a narc, and I'm you know, going to be leading them to you. Sabatini then says, I need to tell you this other thing. Yeah, got it. And so then the the double cross, it's a double reverse cross. Sure. And... Well, we have a really easy methodology for Clark Kellogg to fake his death. He is surrounded by very venomous particular venomous animals. animals. A couple of which he's already established a relationship with who trust him. And we can have established earlier in the movie, love jumping on his shoulder, love clinging onto his head. And all that has to happen is they just have to do that again. I, I think that works. That's a, that's very good. I like that twist. I like that idea. And then, okay, so Clark Kellogg dies, fakes his death. The bad cops run off with the money. Does Clark Kellogg then have to assume a fake identity? Or do the bad cops still get arrested by the FBI outside and the FBI doesn't take any steps further? I think the, the bad cops still get arrested by the FBI. I think the FBI can investigate further, but because Sabatini is gone, because the rest of the money is gone... 
some rich people get arrested but they hire lawyers and they're they're not even arrested. They're we like... can even go the other way. So one of the okay. twists that they have in the movie is that they tell, they're telling all these rich people that they're serving them endangered animals. But then it turns out that's not the case. Uh, they're serving them like a, a rotisserie chicken or whatever. But in this one, because they've kind of lured in all of these gullible rich people who are there because they were promised this pitch of it's venom. It's not even illegal or anything. Like you can't trace it in your blood. All of a sudden, they get the, every single one of them gets blood tested, and every single one of them has, I don't know, some uh, low-level narcotic in their blood. Like, what's still illegal in California? I mean, if I was going to... I'm actually going to flag my own play, because like, that means we're... Like, let's say we are giving all these rich people heroin or something. We're giving all these rich people a drug that they shouldn't have. Yeah. So I, that's that's bad we can't do that so we can't do what happens in the first one where they're given something fake they need to purely be given a placebo that's what i think it is yeah and they just need to be acting weird yeah they have to be making asses of themselves stone cold sober and that's what ends up drawing the attention of the fbi away from the people in the quote-unquote kitchen who are making their way out as the FBI are having to deal with the famous Silicon Valley types maybe doing things with their phones that they shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that a a room full of incredibly rich sto- stoned, I say with air quotes in this audio medium, a room full of stoned rich people can cause enough of a distraction Especially if it's revealed... Well, it couldn't be revealed to them in the moment that it was fake. But... Yeah. It's more fun if we find... If we see them doing all these crazy things and then we cut to afterwards. Like, so what did you give them? Nothing. Yeah. It's yeah. Right, but like, what did they have? Oh, it was a couple glasses of wine. Some of them had gummy bears. Like, weed gummies? No, just gummy bears. Just, were, just gummy bears. There, there were gummy bites. So like, some of them got some great vitamin C today. Which I know is a joke that's been done in other mediums before, but it's still a good one. Yeah. I mean, look, you gotta you gotta get that 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 vitamin B somehow. It's important. So all we can say is that some of those rich people won't be getting scurvy today. And what more could you want than not to get scurvy? It's I, the I highest aspiration that Absolutely. anyone could. No, could no pursue. one wants to die the pirate's death. Teeth fall out. It's oh, awful. Unpleasant. Um, okay, yeah. And then at the end, we kind of like get the come down of like here's. The plan went off without a hitch. We learned everything. They basically say, great, you did a good job doing this. We did a good job doing this. Shake hands. But it was really nice working with you. I liked working with you too, but let's do something more fun in the future. And they open a a vegan burger place. End of movie. It's called Knock Knock Burgers. Because he's the one that knocks. Oh, okay. (laughs) I got there. Yeah. (laughs) I don't remember his character's name in Breaking Bad. Walter White? Yeah, yeah. White burgers. Heisenberg. Heisenbergers. He- it's, it's right it's, there. It, it was right there the whole oh, time. Oh, it's so perfect. Great. They open Heisenbergers. It's, it's a great impossible burger plan with a bunch of really interesting. It's like it's a base impossible burger, but all of the sauces are really interesting and exotic. Or it's a base impossible burger, or maybe it's real meat. You can never, never know. You never know. You never know what you're going to end up with. Roll credits. <laughs> End of credits. The slow Loris escapes into the wild. Or gets back to its natural habitat. Whatever. 
some sort of conservation efforts, what have you. Yeah, I, I don't think a slow loris is going to have the best time just wandering around wine country. But maybe... I don't know. Wine country, like, it's a lot of open fields, a lot of grapes. Yeah, not much shade. I feel like lorises are a rainforest animal. I think you're probably right. They'll figure it out. They're, and, they're a smart and, bunch. And wine vineyards are chosen for their... For their dry, yes. arid climates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. Some, some, uh, the slow loris ends up someplace good and happy. Yeah. Where it lives out its days in the place where it should be. Ev- everyone wins, except for the people who deserve to lose. The end. Yep. Movie. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, is there anything else that we're missing that we need to go over? I don't think so. I think that's... I think that's the movie. Yeah, I don't have anything else. Yeah, I'm happy to do the rest of our casting. Yeah. Let's rock and roll. Okay. Obviously, we have to start with Clark Kellogg. Yes. You went first for Sabatini, so let me tell you about my Clark Kellogg. Please. I just cast a kid who... He's a, I cast someone who could actually be freshman age. I didn't cast a 28-year-old. I think this mm-hmm. kid's 19, maybe 20. Okay. And... The only thing I've really seen him in, he was the voice actor in Coco, but he's also had roles in Shameless and done a bunch of other things. Okay. This actor's name is Anthony Gonzalez. Okay. I'm, I'm not expecting you to know who he is. He's just cool, young kid, has the look, the right age. Yeah. We know he can sing. I, I try very hard to go for people we might not necessarily think of, but that's who I had for Clark Kellogg. So I, I got a name stuck in my head right at the start and tried to find someone else and couldn't. Okay. And I I am leaning into the, this person is clearly too old to be a freshman in college. Ah, okay. All um, right. I, I have cast someone who, who is a year younger than Matthew Broderick was when this movie released. So probably about that, the same age he was when it filmed. research. But an actor who does the lost little lamb in search of a father figure better than anyone else i i can think of since matthew broderick is it tom holland it is tom holland (laughs) yeah that makes sense that is precisely who he is and who he plays yeah you can absolutely make an argument that the way tom holland does characters it is a very matthew broderick-esque characters like the oh oh, oh, geez oh i'm just morty but in real life Kind of character. Yeah. I could see that. That's, I mean, yeah. And he does, he does, he's a young 27. He, he is. Because he's going to, like, he He's going to continue to be Spider-Man. Like, the next Spider-Man movie, he's going to be playing a freshman in college. Yeah. Theoretically, if he gets to go to college. But, like, yeah. There's nothing wrong with Tom Holland. <laughs> I can't think of any reason not to go with Tom Holland other than the fact that he's like one he's, of the most famous people in the yes, world. That's And he's just like another white boy. But I feel like for for the Kellogg role at least, you would want a name that is equivalent. You you want you want a name to, to go up against Brian. I think that's true Brian of Cranston. Marlon Brando, the Marlon Brando character. I don't think that's true of the Matthew Broderick character. The only thing that we need is that the Marlon Brando character looks like the guy and is distracting. Yeah. We don't necessarily need that in in Clark in the Clark Kellogg character, theoretically. Again, I'm not opposed to Tom Holland. He's fine. <laughs> Let's take a look at who we have for everyone else. I, uh, I think then, we'll wind up with yours, though. But if I end up getting more elsewhere, we'll go with Tom Holland. Like I said, 
Tom Holland is, if this movie was getting remade today, yeah. it would be Tom Holland. Yeah. It wouldn't be anyone else. That's just who it would be, period, the end. You're correct to pick Tom Holland. I'm just being obnoxious. <laughs> so did you have someone for Victor Ray, the the nephew? I That was the one which I forgot. Okay. I knew as I was putting this list together, there is a character I'm forgetting. Uh, it was Victor Ray. So I gender-swapped this character. Okay. Because, uh, like... If we're leaning into the found family, like, Brian Cranston's a white guy, I do not need the nephew to be, or the niece in this case, to be a white guy. I went with an actress who I've recently seen in After Party. I started watching After Party. Scott, you finally got me. I'm watching After Party. Are you happy? Please be happy. (laughs) I also first saw her in The Good Place. I didn't know that she voiced the character of Sabine in Star Wars Rebels. I genuinely didn't know that. This is the actress Tia Sarkar. If you watch The Good Place... She is original Ellen. Good Ellen. Oh, okay. She's the one that went to the bad place in place of yeah. uh, Kristen Bell. Yeah. I did not know that she did Sabine's voice either. I didn't either. I was like, I was like, oh my God. And I just, I just thought it was, like, I was just going, going through her IMDb pulling stuff and I was like, oh. Yeah. Great. You said you didn't have someone for that, so we're going to go with Tia Sarkar. I, unless that, you are violent, No, no, that works. Post. That works. Cool. So then that brings us to the daughter, Tina Sabatini. I can go first for this one. I cast a young... She's, she's, I think she's a year or two older than Anthony Gonzalez, which means she's three or four years younger. I guess she's five or six years younger than Tom Holland, but whatever. She is known for the character she plays in It. I most recently saw her in the new Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. She was also in Asteroid City. She is Sophia Lillis. The red-headed druid from okay, Dungeons yeah, and Dragons. Yeah, she's good. She can have attitude. She can. She's just a good actress. Like yeah. she's she's in the horror movie, and then she's in the fantasy movie, and she's playing very different characters. And so, yeah, I just thought that'd be fun. Who did you have for the daughter? So I went with another late twenties actor for this. Great, because if if we were going with Tom Holland, then I didn't want that big age disparity. I think that makes sense for the age of the father, even if if it's Brian Cox or Brian Cranston, to have a slightly older daughter. It also contributes to, regardless of who we cast as Kellogg, it contributes to the off-puttingness of their initial interactions. If if you have a 27-year-old throwing herself at a 21 year old or a 19 year old yeah that's significantly weirder that's true and and we want that initial seduction to be weird i agree with you for for that scene to work yeah okay and i did not realize until looked at all of all of the names laid out here how overwhelmingly british my my, uh, (laughs) okay my my casting is but i wanted someone who could do innocent who could do seductive who was in that age range so i cast uh phoebe dinavore i don't know how to pronounce her last name but she was the lead in bridgerton oh okay dinavore d-y-n-e-v-o-r phoebe dinavore i haven't seen bridgerton but yeah great if she's in bridgerton then she can do seduction well yes She's and also she, in Younger, in Snatch. She was in The Musketeers, Dickensian. She's she's done stuff. Yeah, but I also wouldn't necessarily think of her as someone who's like, oh, I instantly recognize and know who this person is. Like, I think this is perfect. I think this is excellent casting. Great, Phoebe Dynavore. It is Dynavore. Dynavore. 
However her name is pronounced, that's what we respect. Great. Then the next person I have is the chef. Okay. Who did you have for the chef? So I am leaning into the stunt casting nature okay. inherent in this project. Okay. Uh, I am casting Matthew Broderick as uh-huh. the chef. Okay, fair enough. I can see that. The chef is charming. The chef is a little bit off-putting. The chef is generally kind of strange, but very charismatic in his strangeness. That's true. You can't say that Matthew Broderick isn't those things now. Yes. That it is. It's true. And it's not like people are going to be so familiar with the original movie that they're going to go like, oh yeah, the guy from the original one. Right. That's not bad. I went with... So this particular actor has done... Was like kind of a YouTube personality. Like he's one of the... He was like on or one of the Try Guys. Okay. Uh, and then he was on a show called Without a Recipe. Like I didn't realize I was going to be... We were going to be doing drugs necessarily. So I kind of liked the idea of the chef actually being somebody who knew, knew how to cook. But I specifically cast him... Because I knew he was an actor because I know he was a voice in Nimona. He is the voice of the blonde boyfriend. Okay. It's an actor named Eugene Lee Yang. So uh, Eugene Lee Yang is... He's American, but he's, uh, his parents are from South Korea. He is a queer filmmaker. Uh, he's 37. He does a lot of work for human rights and LGBTQ plus ag- advocacy. And style icon and would be very fun leaning into yeah the the wine country-esque sommelier of it all yeah looking at pictures of him i i can see him he can do that uh the character he voices in nimona is named ambrosius golden loin and that's funny to me (laughs) nimona is a very cute movie if you haven't seen nimona it's worth your time nimona is very very good it's also a movie that got canceled by Disney, so fuck you, Disney! Ha <laughs> ha, Nimona! <laughs> cool. So then that brings me to Arthur Fleber. Yes. You went first for the last one, so I'll go first for this one. I wanted just the pure arrogance and overconfidence. So we have Arthur Fleber in my version of this character, my version of this teacher. I still leaned into like kind of the film teacher or whatever, but like she could also do sociology. Again, I gender swapped this character. Mm-hmm. I also want this character playing herself. So it is. So this person who we all know from SNL and Bridesmaids and The Good Place and so many things is Maya Rudolph. And I think it'd be really funny playing Maya Rudolph as Maya Rudolph. Just the overconfidence of Maya Rudolph just being that person being like, well, obviously the way I would do it. By the way, have you have you seen my performance in Bridesmaids? I, Maya Rudolph, as you say, stunt casting, would be real... Like, if I were Maya Rudolph, and I am, of course, Maya Rudolph, and if it was me in this situation, here's how I would have mm-hmm. uh, portrayed 1932's movie I re- referenced earlier. Whatever. If I was being Robert Redford in The Candidate, here's how I would have done it. Like, one of those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just think that'd be funny, and I think she'd be particularly good at pulling that off. That would be funny. She she could do that. I don't know if she's a good sociology teacher though. So who do you, who do you have? I I went for a much more uh, traditional casting. Just a late middle age, great white guy who is just 
you just want to punch him in the face. <laughs> okay. Uh, and great. that is Steven Tobolowski. Oh, I know this person. I know we've I've cast him for something before. He, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Steven Tobolowski, of the, course. The guy from Groundhog Day yeah. who you just want to punch in the face. Bing! He has only gotten more punchable as time goes by. Yeah, as, I've listened <laughs> to interviews with him. <laughs> I know nothing Very about him as a person. Incredibly nice human being. Okay. But very easily could lean into the... Yes, absolutely. Stephen Stobolowski for sure. All right. Uh, and then I actually didn't cast the cop, so the I don't have any other actor roles. Do you? I cast the roommate. Oh, did I skip the... Oh, no, I do have the roommate. <laughs> I have a hyphenate and I miscounted. Yes, I, I do have the roommate. Who did you have for the roommate? For the roommate, I wanted an, an enthusiasm to, to contrast with Kellogg's naivete. Sure. And I wanted someone who could bring excitement and energy and just be really, really into the moviness of all of this. Yeah. And I also cast someone age-appropriate because the idea for me of 27-year-old Tom Holland acting opposite an an 18-year-old. That's very funny. Uh, So I cast Glenn Matarazzo. I don't know who that is. He's from Stranger Things. He's the kid with the gap in his teeth. I haven't seen Stranger Things. I can't watch scary things. Stranger Things. As someone who also cannot watch scary things, Stranger Things is not scary. Is that how you pronounce G-A-T-E-N as Glenn? No, G-L-E-N-N. That says G-A-T-E-N. Oh my god, you're right. I am (laughs) very, very good at reading. Gotten Matarazzo. Yes, Dustin Henderson. Yes. I was so focused on spelling his last name right. I'm going to blame this one on autocorrect. Okay. <laughs> that's fair. I could very easily see autocorrect saying, like, that's not a word. You know what is a word? Glenn. Let's, uh... I don't actually think it was autocorrect, but I'm going to blame it on autocorrect. Absolutely. Let, let, I, I agree. It, it was my own mental autocorrect. I saw Gaten and was like, that's not a name. Nope. So for me, I went with a character. He, he's been on Teen Wolf. I know him from the, the, the Runaways, which apparently got three seasons. I only watched the first season, but he's very good in it. It's an actor named Renzi Feliz, R-H-E-N-Z-Y-F-E-L-I-Z. Oh, this guy. Yeah. He also, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. Good young kid, good enthusiastic kid, could do play opposite either Tom Holland or Anthony Gonzalez. Good performer. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I'm going to make us do this one. As of this moment, I have gotten four of the possible six, so I am going to give you Tom Holland. Okay. The former film executive in me is very happy with that. It is going to significantly boost our box office. That's true. I try not to usually think about box office because then we just go with the same A-list and we have the exact same problem that movies now have of just seeing the exact same people over and over again. Yeah. And like... We, we're learning now that a bankable star isn't necessarily, but... Yeah. To an extent. Like, I don't think The Rock is a bankable star anymore, but I bet Zendaya is. Mm-hmm. So, like, that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't have any more actors. Do you have any more actors? I do not have any more actors, no. Okay. So then that leaves us with writer and director. And yes. as I let slip earlier, I have a hyphenate. Do you have a hyphenate or a separate writer and director? Uh, separate. Okay. Let's do your writer, okay. we'll do my hyphenate, and then we'll do your director. So my writer, I settled on this writing team because I I like their stuff. Honestly, I'm not committed to them so much as what they stand for. Sure. Which is, I I wanted a 
old Hollywood studio system writer. Oh, okay. Um, I feel like this movie is very much about movies and and the way that we interact with them and our relationships with these characters. I think that's fair. So I went with a writing team who they have been working for almost literally forever. <laughs> uh, okay. But they they did I think they were uncredited but significant rewrites on The Rock. They wrote the the script for Across the Universe, the oh, Beatles okay. movie. I like that movie. They wrote, they, they were one of the writing teams who worked on Flushed Away, but they've also written heists. And so I think that they could pull off the the the, the heist at the core of this. Uh, they wrote The Bank Job. Oh, okay. Which was a really fantastic heist movie that kind of flew under the radar but a great Jason Statham British heist thriller. My writers are Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet. Cool. I'm not really familiar with them as writers, but yeah that that's a good resume. They, they are just solidly versatile. They can do crime. They can do comedy. They can do emotion. They, they are just journeyman writers yeah. who can who can who can do turn in the good old work. Hollywood kind yeah. of system. Yeah, great. So for my person, looking up what they're, I mean, they have one, two, three, four, five, six scripts currently in development. Like they're obviously still working. Good for them. So for mine, I have a hyphen it, and I was trying to find something for the comedy because a lot of the comedy in this is very dry. And I was kind of trying to find a similar sort of modern equivalent, more like, it's been 33 years, 33 or later, kind of similar style dry comedy. Mm -hmm. And that kind of led me to Only Murders in the Building. Okay. And I was going through the writers and directors of that, and I landed on Jamie Babbitt. And why I stuck with her, and why I stuck with her specifically as both a hyphenate of writer and director, is because she both wrote and directed, but I'm a cheerleader. Which I think is very much emblematic of like fish out of water trying to figure out yeah. what's going on, what's yeah. in the situation, what's happening. And as an added bonus, keeping in mind I had no idea we were going to be setting this in San Francisco, she was also a director on Silicon Valley. Okay. So accidentally, she kind of hits all the tenants I was looking for. But yeah. really, I was looking for, I found her because of Only Murders in the Building, but I, I mostly went with her because of, but I'm a cheerleader. Yeah. Because I feel like, context aside, it is kind of a very similar arc of, with, as the kind of thing we're going for. A bigger, a bigger, more bombastic world than the character is kind of expecting, and the character is trying to find their own voice and their own place in that world. It's a real simplification of both movies. But that's what I'm trying to do here yeah. to get my uh, gal. Yeah. But I want to know who your director is. My director is, so leaning into the, this is a story about the idle rich and the the problems of wealth, the criminality of wealth. And it's not a particularly subtle story either. No, it's not. If you want someone to direct a just in-your-face, on-the-nose movie about the bad shit that rich people do, then Adam McKay is your man. Yeah. Yeah, Adam McKay Adam <laughs> McKay's absolutely the right guy to go for, especially with that in mind. I mean, you're not wrong. 
I feel like in this case, I feel like it should be written by Jamie Babbitt and then directed by Adam McKay. I'd I'd be happy with that. Yeah. I would also be happy letting her write and direct. We'll get them both in there for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, worst case scenario, he can like do the thing where it's like, and special thanks too. Mm -hmm. But I think for our purposes, written by Jamie Babbitt, get that voice in there and directed by Adam McKay because no one knows lampooning rich people better than Adam McKay. Yeah. So we have our cast. Let me take you through it. The Freshman. <laughs> Introducing class of 2027. The Freshman. Clark Kellogg will be played by Tom Holland. Carmine Sabatini will be Brian Cranston. Victoria Ray will be Tia Sarkar. Tina Sabatini will be Phoebe Dynavar. Dynavar. Steve Bouchak will be e- Eugene Lee Yang. Arthur Fleber will be Stephen Tobolowski. Fleber to Tobolowski. Great. <laughs> Dwight Armstrong will be Renzi Feliz. All of this will be written by Jamie Babbitt and directed by Adam McKay. That is The Freshman. You gonna go see this movie or buy this movie on DVD? I I I will own the movie on DVD with no memory of ever acquiring it. Perfect. <laughs> no higher honor. Great, Ben. Thank you so much for being my guest on Ideal Remake. Now is the time. Tell everyone about your books again. I have two books. They are very, very different from each other. I have a hard noir crime thriller called A Man of Lies, which is about a mafia enforcer uh, who is caught stealing from his boss and launches a desperate con to raise enough money to save his own life. And I have a graphic novel, Cosmic Cadets, which is a all-ages science fiction adventure story that follows the children of the command crew of a ship as it explores the galaxy and meets fun new alien races. Such a fun concept. Cool. If anyone is, is there anything else you want to promote? Like do you, social media you want people to follow or? I am no longer promoting my Twitter. If you want to find me on there, then cool, but I'm not <laughs> sending people there. I'm on blue sky at Ben dot crane. And then there's the whole blue yeah, sky yeah, I thing. I think Ben that. dot crane would, yeah. How do you... Sp- people could probably look it up, but in case they're in their cars and just remember for later, how do you spell crane? C-R-A-N-E. Like Great. the bird or the company that manufactured the toilets in my elementary school. That probably didn't get back to you in any way, shape, or form. Nope. I'm not still bitter about it now, 30 years later <laughs> at all. No. I mean, speaking of someone whose last name is Gash, and you'll never guess what the first three <laughs> letters in last that last name are. <sighs> Anyway, if you're interested in following me, podcast is on Instagram at Ideal Remake, or you can find me as well on Blue Sky at Sam Gash, S-A-M-G-A-S-C-H. But that's a podcast. So, Ben, thank you again so much for introducing me to this movie. I had a lot of fun watching it. I had a lot of fun talking about it. We will end this episode the same way we end every episode. What is your favorite quote from the movie, The Freshman? Oh, God, I should have come prepared. No one does. I, I... We can look it up. (laughs) You don't have to have, like... No, we we have to do this live. Okay, all right. Me me struggling, there's absolutely no way that I I can do... The best quote is the quote that I used for the beginning when, like, we're sitting on the couch and I'm like, oh, I'm using that. I remember you saying that. Every word I say is by definition... By definition, a promise. Yeah. it's It was such a good line that I wrote it down. Let's check the IMDb page for The Freshman and see what 
what notable quotes they have. I'm sure the 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 nephew has like, hey, New York, it's like this. I'm just gonna be this guy talking about stuff here, or like buy this buy the flea the fleeber texts are so very important, like lots of stuff like that. Genuinely, what you also could do is your favorite quote from the movie The Freshman, and then say a quote from The Godfather. That'd be the correct thing to do. It's been so long since I saw The Godfather. I also don't know one offhand, but like uh, my favorite quote from the movie The Freshman: "Look at how they massacred my boy." <laughs> I know it was you. <laughs> that's that's number. That's the second one. Is it the that's only Godfather two? The only okay, yeah, whatever. They're the same movie. <laughs> uh, quotes. This this is actually a great line. There's a kind of freedom in being completely screwed because you know things can't get any worse. Perfect. 